Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Hey, you guys. Uh, it's Tuesday night. The show is coming out tomorrow. And Aaron, uh, today you talked to Wesley Lowry. Wesley has been on the show before. Uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize uh, for his reporting from Ferguson. Um, at the time we talked, he had landed uh, in Minneapolis the day before. And I basically wanted to understand his process for reporting the story, which is happening in real time. Show is brought to you by MailChimp, as always. Now here's Aaron with Wesley Lowry. Wesley, hello. How you doing? Um, did you just fly? You're in Minneapolis, as I understand. How long have you been there? So this is my second day in Minneapolis. I got him yesterday and covered the protest and then... I'll be here for a bit. And prior to that, I was back home in DC kind of doing some desk work, but then also kind of out in the streets doing some street reporting there too. What caused you to want to make the jump from reporting on protests in DC to reporting on a protest in in Minneapolis? Uh, So there are two things. Like the first is that I always kind of want to get to the heart of the story, right? And so you look at all these other protests that are popping off and they all are kind of branches that have grown off of the Minneapolis protest. And so for me, if I want to be able to write something that feels definitive or, you you know, that really helps explain it, I feel like I got to get all the way to the original source. The second thing I'll say is like, I've covered protests in Minneapolis here before. This is the third or fourth major Black Lives Matter related demonstrations related to police killings here. And so this, this is a city that has a significance within the larger context already, right? You have some cities like like Ferguson, Missouri, that are not as part of the conversation until one of the shootings happens, and then they are. And then there are other cities that are always there, right? New York's always somehow involved. And Minneapolis is one of those cities where this has now been three or four incidents. And so if you're actually telling the definitive story of Black Lives Matter and and, and this moment, you have to have Minneapolis. And so to me, that's a big draw. Like, let me go back and see how things have changed since the last time I was here in the streets with these same activists. How's the crowd different? How's it the same? What's going on? Now, I arrived a full week after George Floyd's death. And it would be very easy to parachute in and only focus on rioting and destruction and looting and mass protest and what happens next. And I think as a storyteller, as a reporter, as a journalist, it's important to remind yourself, where did the story start? What is this story about? This is the story about the police killing this man. And the best way to remind yourself of that is to have the literal first thing you do in the city, go look at the mural painted this, of this man and look at the ground that you saw in the viral video. And so that was the first thing I did when I got here. Can you tell me at all about that experience of going to the ground zero? What kinds of interpersonal interactions you're having? Like when you, when you just start chatting with someone, do you say, Hey, I'm a reporter. So it cuts in a few different directions. So for example, on that trip yesterday, right. That stop by is almost like a reporting trip for my purposes. Like I'm filling my head, not necessarily in my notebook. And so it's different, right? I, I didn't speak to anyone that time. Right. And I was literally just going to like get in the headspace. 
knowing that I'm going to be at that mural, I'm going to be at that location probably for endless hours over the course of the next day. I'm going to do hundreds mm. of interviews there, right? But this trip was specifically about like getting the context understanding. In general, when you're in a space like this, in a protest space like this, you know, I try to be really personal and really um, casual in some ways, if that makes sense, right? Because at the end of the day, like protesters are people, they're just people. And what also is true very often, and you don't always see this, or you can't always grasp this in the national coverage of these things, is that during the day, it's basically a block party, right? It's like a community event. Everyone's coming out and buying a t-shirt and listening to music and painting a mural. And then at night is often where things start to go a little, go a little left. And so because of that, especially during the day, the reporting can frankly, be really easy in terms of talking to people. You just have to remember to do it, to actually talk to them, right? And ask them questions. Why are, and ask them smart questions, right? Why are you actually here? What do you actually specifically want to see happen next? What, as opposed to, you know, I think sometimes the idea that protesters are in a place becomes the story as opposed to, hey, these people are saying they want this thing, which is the real story. One other uh, little best practice tool of trade, like total trick that anyone can use, because I don't know about you, but like, you know, one of my like deepest secrets is that I'm like scared to talk to people. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not good <laughs> at like w- walking up to someone on the street and bothering. I feel so invasive. I, I when I was like an intern at like the Boston Globe, I would get sent out to these like the most metro-y stories of all time. One time I did this story about, I think it was literally the big ships festival where they pull a bunch of big ships into Boston and I had to go write like the Saturday Metro story about it. And that story took me nine hours because I was scared to approach a person at the big ships to ask them about it. And I just stood there all day, right? So anyway, the way I get around that is, the thing about protest is a bunch of people have come there and made signs that they are holding up that they want people to see what's on the sign. So I go, hey, do you mind if I take a photo of your sign? And almost every person then poses for a photo with their sign. And then I walk up to them and say, Hey, you know, uh, my name is Wesley. I'm actually a reporter. Um, and would it be hard if I asked you about why you came out or if I grabbed your name just for, and most people, one, like having their picture taken, especially in a low stakes thing like that, right? In a daytime protest where it's not hypertense and they're showing off the message they wanted to send. And so, sure, take my photo. And then everyone kind of understands how caption information works, right? It's like tag me on Instagram. Yes, I'm going to tell you who I am. I want, and so suddenly you're having a conversation. Wait, so have you been out here? What's it like yesterday? How was it? Well, now their friend comes over. You take a photo of their sign too. And so after an hour of that, you got, you know, a hundred protest photos and a hundred interviews. In this specific case, these protests, they are happening all over the country simultaneously. How does the sort of fractured geography of this change how journalists should look at it? How is it changing how you're approaching it? So one thing that's true, and this was true even when it was just, it was one city, but even when that was true, one thing that happens is that we as the media, as journalists, we move very quickly. And very often we forget to follow up on yesterday's story. And so with the course of a story like this, you have all types of angles that present themselves a new viral video happens of someone getting beat up by a police officer. And then, you know, a different family member surfaces who was a witness to the thing. And 
very often we never go back and actually report out those things. These are all just these like fleeting viral moments that happen on the internet. And no one ever calls the guy in that photo <laughs> or calls the woman in that video and gets the story. And very often there are really good stories there that explain something that your audience is already primed, right? It's let me give you the 2000 word version of that viral clip you saw. And that's a thing that everyone reads and clicks on and learns from. And so I think that's like a big part of our responsibility in this moment is remembering that, you know, there are still things that we have to drill into and questions we have to ask, right? Think about in Minneapolis, for example, there are still process questions to be asked about this death, right? Uh, specific questions about what, so what are the officer statements? What, you, you could think of any number of different little things that you could ask that on a normal Metro story without any of the protest excitement, we would be covering and asking. But the reporters who would do that work, with the exception of an occasional hyper-dedicated local reporter, end up getting diverted because now they have to cover everything else that's going on. And some of those stories end up not getting done. And so I always try to think about, like, what is the story that would have been the biggest get in the country yesterday, and then everyone else moved on? Because guess what? It's still probably a pretty good get. A really good example of that also, like of a story that never gets done, is no one goes and interviews all the arrested people. No, you never hear from them. And journalistically, we could learn all types of things. Maybe we interview those people and they go, yeah, actually, I am an anarchist and I did show up to subvert the whole thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. like who, knows, who knows what they say when you call them, right? Or you find crazy examples of abuse, right? Like, we weren't even at the protest. We were somewhere else. And they, like, the cops kidnapped us, right? Like, who knows what the story you're going to find is? And you'll never know if you never call the people and ask them the question, right? Here's another thing that happens, right? We, people become statistics in numbers, right? It's like thousands of people arrested and five dead and violence across the country. Who are the five dead people? Right. Like literally, who are they? Like, I think I know broadly that there was some shooting in Indianapolis and there was, I know, I know there was a case here in, you know, but like, but like actually who are they and what's their story? Because that's like pretty serious. <laughs> they died. Right. It would be like Charlottesville happening and us not knowing Heather Heyer's name, right? That's what it would be. And yet that's true. I don't know the name of a single of the people who have died in these clashes and this stuff, right? So in terms of kind of prepping, two things are true. And obviously I'm kind of in the unenviable position of having covered a lot of this stuff before. And so I kind of have a little bit of an autopilot that I go into and think about, but you know, I think a big part of it is trying to get back to the early coverage before everyone was paying attention, what was being written and said. It's like checking the clips before you do a feature story, right? What is all the publicly informa available information about this thing I'm looking for? And sometimes when we parachute in, everything's moving so quickly, you never even think to do that, right? So maybe the Star Tribune's day one story on the shooting has this amazing tidbit of information. The other example I use when I think about that is I always think about this in terms of mass shootings, for example, which I covered a lot of uh, when I was at the Washington Post. And local TV on a mass shooting surfaces the name of like hundreds of witnesses. And they all give one soundbite and then disappear into the ether. And so one reporting strategy is to watch the feed of the local TV and write down every name and then call those people. And you get like inundated with all these details and, and 
And it's as if you were there on the ground and you're sitting at your desk, right? And so it's just trying to think about those kind of innovative reporting strategies of how do I get as much information as possible? And also, how do I make sure that I'm spending my time getting information? Like, how is that what I'm prioritizing? Not whatever the noise is. You know, with something like this, you can get really distracted. If I'm working on a story right now about a profile of one of the protesters or one of the demonstrators, it doesn't really matter what the governor is saying at the press conference that's live streaming. Yet the inclination of all of us always is to like stop what we're doing and watch the live stream or to be watching what Trump's doing in DC. And so you have to be really disciplined about like, what am I actually doing today and how do I avoid all of the noise? In terms of like what you're working on, do you know what you're working on right now? Like, did you fly in knowing what's like the topic of what you wanted to write about was? Yes and no. In this case, I mean, I've got a list of, I think literally 12 targets, like things I want to do this week or could do this week. And a lot of those are feelers, right? Some of those are like shots you shoot in the air that you know are never going to fall. Right. Well, you know, it would be really great if like Colin Kaepernick could be on the phone for me, right? <laughs> Is that really one of them on your list? Phone call with Colin Kaepernick, question mark? Yes, yes. No, it's on the list. And you know how I guarantee I won't get that story? Is if I don't try to. Right. And so it's literally on my list, which means today it's my job to send him a DM on Twitter and email his attorney, right? <laughs> and then I've done that part of it for the day, Right. And I move on to the next story target. Okay, well, I wanted to get back at this angle. How do I knock out two or three things on that? All right, what's the next story? And so again, it's like, for me, I'm just always trying to think about how do I come up with three or four really good ideas? Because that way, if one of them lands, then I have one really good story and the whole trip's worth it. Is that something that you learned from your experiences at previous protests? And like, I guess I'm curious, like, what you realized you were doing wrong um, when you've been through this experience previously. Yes. No, I've learned all of these things by doing it completely the wrong way. <laughs> this is, <laughs> these are all lessons that are learned by screwing it up, right? Where like you go to cover the protest and you spend the entire day like tweeting photos of the protesters and you don't write the article for the newspaper that you're working for and your bosses are like, what are you doing? Why are you tweeting and not like writing? Or you do the thing where you do all these great interviews and you only use what's going in the story and you leave all the stuff in your notebooks. You have these great quotes, you've got photos and you could just put them on the internet at this time when everyone is looking for content on this, right? And so it's just thinking about those things. Like I said, a big thing I try to avoid completely is the temptation to just stand around waiting for bad things to happen which is like 90% of protest reporting, is like there are a lot of people here. The cops are here. One group standing here, the other group standing here. As the media, we're going to kind of be in this middle spot and we're just going to stand here as long as they are to see if bad things will happen. That is like miserable reporting. <laughs> it's like 90 degrees in Minneapolis right now. <laughs> it's just standing outside and nothing's happening. Almost no journalism is being done, right? And so there's real value. And having cameras there and having people there. And, and frankly, everyone's got their cell phones. So people are documenting things. Like I would never say there should not be journalists there. But I can also say, all right, it seems like there are 100 journalists here. If I go back to the hotel and make some phone calls, will like the public miss something? Probably not. And so I think about that all the time. Like Let the pack do the journalism so that you can go do the journalism. 
That brings up something that you've talked about on on Twitter that I found really interesting, uh, that the protections afforded journalists in a protest situation are fundamentally no different than the protections that should be afforded protesters themselves. It's all just the First Amendment. There's no special journalism badge. Correct, right? Because what is journalism? We show up places, talk to people, and take photos, which is literally exactly what all the protesters are doing. (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) Documenting this thing that's happening in public. (laughs) And speech, right? It's speech. And so I, I think that sometimes we don't think about that. Like we see ourselves as this set off special class. And frankly, the activists and the protesters get that. They sense that. They despise us for that. They're, they're basically like, you guys are cops. <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, we theoretically should be on the same team because we are people showing up to exercise the First Amendment, as are you. And yet, you know, there's this disconnect. And so I think that my mindset is always kind of like, everyone is here to kind of exercise their First Amendment rights. It's no more outrageous if I, as a reporter, get unjustifiably tear gassed or rubber bulleted than if literally my younger brother who might show up at the protest, right? Do I think that I'm more special than my brother? Certainly not. You know, and I don't say this. I think sometimes when I say stuff like this, people get really defensive, understandably, because I think in journalism spaces, we're so used to all parroting a very specific, valorized company line around like how the First Amendment works. And to be clear, like I'm a champion and crusader of those things. It's extremely important. The job we do is really important. No journalist should be being arrested for doing their job. No journalist should be being attacked for doing their job, right? All of these things have literally happened to me. So I promise you that's where I am on them. And also no American citizen who shows up in a public place to nonviolently petition their government should be subject to violence either or wrongful arrest, right? And I think as journalists, we should able to say that. It's a First Amendment thing. Where does that leave you on how journalists should behave in these chaotic situations? Do you think people should not be calling out press, press, press and holding up whatever badge or um, t-shirt identifies them as such? I don't have a problem with that, right? Because at the end of the day, look, man, Riot officer's charging you and he's pointing his rubber bullet gun at you. You say whatever you need to say to make sure he doesn't pull that trigger. Sure. Because uh, those things hurt. It's not a, I'm never going to look at one of those. And again, as someone who had a viral video moment like that of myself, I was arrested on a viral video in 2014 and then had the entire industry critique whether or not I had done precisely the right thing, which that was not fun. <laughs> I'm not ever going to do that. Right. Journalists should not be arrested for doing their job. Full stop. And that said, I think we need to be aware broadly, like very broadly, that our presence also impacts stories, right? Would all of these people be on this particular corner if we weren't set up with our cameras here? Are we creating, like, you know, and again, and that's hyper-specific, right? That's not, we're not creating the whole protest, right? Sometimes there's this, like, talking point or narrative that comes up typically kind of in right-wing media, but that like the media is creating the protest, right? It's all media spectacle. That's not true. That's not what it is. And that goes back a long way. When you read books about lynchings, the locals would say that about the national press corps that came in. There's no racial tension here. I mean, yeah, we all got together and killed that black guy, but the media is just making this up, right? They literally would say that, right? And so then you go to these cities very often 
where you see massive protests and there's a subsection of the locals and, and this narrative kind of gets laundered through again, very often kind of right-wing media. There's a subsection of the locals who say the same thing, right? Well, I don't remember any unrest until all these cameras got here. The media is making this up. You know what they won't show you? It's, we all know that kind of critique. Well, I don't think that stuff's fair. And also, I think we have to be aware broadly that we do impact the story, right? The work we do matters. And that impact is not always good, right? It's not assumed that it's going to be good. It could go in either direction. And we need to be deliberate enough to at least think about which direction we're shoving the story in. What do you make of, I mean, that sort of narrative of uh, outside agitation, whether it's on the side of the media or this sort of shadowy, um, non-local presence, it's almost a bit unknowable, short of like polling every person in Minneapolis as to like where they're from. I I don't know how we're going to get a census. But beyond that also, like how would you define that? Right. If you live in the suburbs, do you count as a non-local? I don't know. Well, precisely. Exactly. Right. And we all know that suburbs work differently in every city, right? You could live three counties away and work downtown. Well, are you an outside agitator or not? Yeah. And again, the kind of clips, the viral video clips that often support these things. It's like, look at these people who we don't recognize from on our street and they seem to have taken their license plate off. That person could literally be from two blocks away right? You have no idea where they came from. So I say that to say, I have never been at a protest. I've never been at any protest, violent or peaceful. That was not a mixture of all types of complicated things. It's how it is, right? It's a massive public assembly with no doorman. There's no bouncer. No one's checking IDs, right? Anyone can show up for whatever reason. And if you talk to activists and organizers in any space, not just, not just in this space, any activist or any organizer who has ever run any massive public event will go, yes, a bunch of people show up and try to hijack my event. It's the person who comes to your panel discussion not to ask a question, but in fact, to make the seven points they want to make at the end, right? Yeah. That, it's that only on steroids. Right? <laughs> it's this massive public event that anyone can come to for any reason. And with the added element of what are the types of things that might be appealing? And so anyone who, for example, worries about any issue of race might come to this, right? So you have immigrant groups. You've obviously got black groups in cases like this, right? Anyone who likes yelling at cops, which is in fact a large subsection of people. You have libertarians who really just love yelling at cops about stuff. You have actual anarchists, like anarchists, black bloc, like white guys in Guy Fawkes masks who love emerging to yell at cops, right? You've got Black Lives Matter protesters who like there's a whole spectrum. Some like hug the cops, others want to yell at the cops and depending on the day, right? And so you have all types of folks suddenly who are in this space. What we also have to remember, because this has come up in some of the public discussion is like, well, what about white supremacists? Could they show up? And look, I have been at protests where you have people like that who do deliberately show up hoping to create additional chaos because, you know, like the enemy of your enemy is your friend, right? If you're a white supremacist, one of the best things that can happen is a bunch of black people who are advocating for their rights and for justice to look bad to the public. Right. Right. And so a protest that's peaceful suddenly turns into a bunch of looting and fire. And you, the white supremacist, get to go, see, look at those animals. (laughs) 
You love that. You literally want that. <laughs> and, and there was a, I mean, local context in Minneapolis, there was a mass shooting at a Black Lives Matter protest where a white supremacist showed up and shot five people just a few years ago. And the reason we don't know about that nationally, don't talk about it nationally, is that the very next morning, the Laquan McDonald video posted, right? And so, and so the story got lost. But like, there is real precedent for white supremacist groups showing up and trying to wreak havoc. And the last thing I'll say on that, because I'm like currently working on a book about white supremacist violence, it's the explicit like, ideological goal of the white supremacist movement to hasten the race war. They think there is an inevitable race war coming and they want to do anything they can to make it happen faster. When they see a bunch of angry black people in the streets, they think this is a good thing because they think it's going to make white people more likely to join the race war too, right? And so all of these elements, all of these things factor in. And I think about a lot of this, obviously like none of this stuff, like not all, <laughs> then you write a story and it's 500 words and like nothing I just said appears anywhere near the story. And also, Knowing those things coming in make it easier to kind of detect BS or to know where you should ask follow-up questions or where you should be, you know, having that background and that context is just really, really important because so much of journalism is about what questions we ask and sometimes more importantly, what questions we don't ask, like what we take at face value versus what we push back on. There's a street level at which this is happening and then there's a, um, a chain of authority that goes through police chiefs and mayors and governors all the way up to Trump and the federal government. And I'm curious, outside of like literally talking to people who are protesting, how do you regard that information chain? Like you look at something like um, the mayor of Minneapolis saying, oh, this is mostly outsiders who are arrested and then being like, oh, no, that was not actually true. I'm curious, like, what sources you trust, if any. Is there any uh, source for trustworthy information? No. Well, and, and there, this is not a case where all things are equal because not all statements are equal. So, for mm -hmm. example, I trust an individual protester to tell me why they are there. Why? <laughs> because they are the definitive source on that. Do I trust the police chief to tell me definitively what happened in the streets then? Well, was he even there? Like, was the guy behind the podium, was he there? Well, no, he wasn't. Okay, so now we're assuming he got whatever he's saying behind the podium from reports from other people, right? <laughs> that then went through a PR department that then decided, you know, okay, so that's a reason to have some level of skepticism from the very beginning, literally no matter what they say, right? If they say something you are inclined to believe or not. I remember a case where we're in St. Louis uh, covering. After Michael Brown was killed, there were two other police shootings that happened between the time Michael Brown was killed and Darren Wilson was not charged. They killed a black kid named Kajimi Powell, and they killed a black man named Bondera um, Myers. And so one night there's this big protest, I think it was after Bondera was killed, at a gas station downtown, and the, the demonstrators do a sit-in in front of the gas station and make the police come and arrest them. And they, they link hands. And we all stood there and watched the police like smash their batons into the heads of these protesters who are just sitting there not bothering, right? And the reporters on the ground are covering this in kind of like a, 
you know, a pretty alarmed way. Like this was objectively really violent and really disturbing. Like what in the world is going on? And the police started saying things that were objective lies. The police put a statement out. They tweet out, we had to do arrest because demonstrators were pelting all of us with rocks. And we're all sitting there like, we are literally standing here with you. There are no rocks. There's not a single rock in this parking lot. Like, did people import the rocks? Where'd they come from? And then the, so I'm pushing back. And the spokesperson at the time, the police department says, well, you're making that up. And you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, the police chief himself was struck with a rock. And I said, that's extremely (laughs) alarming. Uh, Do you have a photo? Did you take the rock into evidence for the assault on the police chief? And they said, oh, well, he actually wasn't hit by the rock. It kind of, and so I was like, so you have now said three, like, factual, definitive things that were extremely inflammatory and with one follow-up question have like admitted that it was not true. I think that sometimes we've got, like, we've got to remember that like the police are not in and of themselves objective observers of things. They are political and government entities who are the literal characters in the story. They are describing the actions of people who are protesting them they have an incentive sometimes to villainize the protest. When I look at the idea that telling people just vote or that the change that you are requesting is somehow achievable through voting is simply a um, insufficient response. That feels like a, at least to me, a new idea to come out of this that is becoming mainstream. And I'm curious for you, you're, you're a longtime political reporter. You've been, spent a lot of time in Washington. Like, what does it mean for reporting on politics for people to come to the conclusion that these issues can't simply be resolved through democracy itself? Or through the voting part of democracy. You could look at protesting as another part of democracy. Street protest is part of democracy, right? Exactly. Like (laughs) publicly petitioning your government, (laughs) it's the reason it's the First Amendment, right? right? I think that's important. I think sometimes we forget that, right? Yep. What I'll say is this. I think one of the biggest biases we all have, and I think it's a bias we we bring into our journalism all the time, is we have a bias that the system works as is. Think about all the things we've learned, even in the specific space in the last five or six years. When Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, your average journalist assumed, well, if there's any chance the police officer did anything wrong, they'll charge him with a crime. We now know, no matter your politics, no matter your background, no matter what outfit you work for, we all know objectively that's not what happens. We know the system is not designed to prosecute police officers. We've all watched cases that the public all unanimously agrees this was bad and have watched cases where the officer isn't charged or isn't even isn't charged initially until there's a public outrage or then gets charged and gets off at the end, right? We constantly have this bias that the system works. As it relates to voting, like we live in an electoral college system where different people's votes count for different amounts of, <laughs> of a vote. I remember we were covering the protests that emerged right after Trump was elected, right? It's like the day after the election and like a billion people in the streets because um, they're upset. And I remember one of my editors looking at me like, why are all these people in the streets? Like, what's the point of this? What do they want? Like, why didn't they vote? If they, if they cared this much, like, why didn't they? I said, let's look at the places where the biggest protests are. New York City, 
Oregon, Chicago, all those people did vote. <laughs> and, and the frustration, like people who protest, people who demonstrate, they do it very often because they have participated in the formal electoral process and it has failed them. And so they have to become more radical to get anything. And so it's just this fascinating dynamic that way in terms of, again, this assumption we make that, well, why don't you just operate within the system, right? Can't you fix it doing it that way? And it's like, well, only if the system actually works. And that requires a whole different than level of interrogation. Having now covered this for, I guess we're going on five or six years uh, since Ferguson, did you, when, when this started bubbling, did you say this is the big one or, or was this a surprise to you? No, I thought very early on this was going to be a very big one. And there are two different reasons for that. The first is the video itself, right? What is actually depicted. But the second thing, and this is, I think, always something to note or to pay very close attention to, is the ones that boil over the most are when they are the third or fourth anecdote in a short succession, right? Think about the last, one of the last big cases here in Minneapolis was Philando Castile, right? Really tough video that people felt very upset. The Fano Castile video dropped one day after the Alton Sterling video in Baton Rouge. And so it's this like boost effect. You're really upset about a video on Monday and you like are upset, you're stressed, you're thinking about going to protest, and you wake up the next day and there's another one. Think about what we've had in the last month. And by the way, at a time when we're all locked in our houses with our family members, for better or worse worried we're going to get sick and die and lose our jobs, right? Like everyone is going through it. And we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And we had the case in Georgia, Ahmad, that was huge. People talked about a vigilante case was a lot like Trayvon Martin. You had all these people who were jogging for him. And then you had uh, this case in Louisville, uh, Breonna Taylor, you know, a black woman shot and killed. The police are serving a warrant at her boyfriend's house. They're not supposed to be there. They're breaking into the house. They haven't announced themselves. And so her boyfriend pulls his gun out and fires, thinking a robber is coming. And the cops say, hey, someone's shooting us. And so they open fire. Innocent girlfriend is killed. And then we had the Central Park lady, right? And so if you are someone inclined to get mad about this stuff, you have had a lot of things to be mad about in a very short period of time. When that is true, that is always a recipe for massive protests and massive demonstration. Who are you reporting for right now? On whose behalf are you in Minneapolis? You know, I'm working with 60 Minutes. We're launching literally in a week uh, this program called 60 and 6 on Quibi, which is, I know for everyone, kind of a thing we joke about on the internet a lot. <laughs> um, Twitter loves to tell some Quibi jokes, um, and, and I do not begrudge good jokes. Um, but essentially it is 60 minutes only on your phone. And, uh -huh. and so I'm doing some segments for them. I'm also doing some writing while I'm down here. Um, and so I might place pieces in a few different places, but also this is kind of the thing I write about and thing I cover. And so even if, even if I didn't have specific places that I was going to do some stuff for, which I do, I would probably still want to be here right now because this is a moment. This is like a moment in time and we're going to come back to this moment in time. And I would much rather you know, be able to talk about it from having a real on the ground experience than just be another person who followed the tweets. And here are my takes. Do you, does that mean you have a camera crew with you at times there? Yeah. Producers. And, 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 and to be clear, that's different for me. 
today and yesterday, the first days I have ever covered a protest where I had to worry about any other human being, much less expensive equipment. Right? And, and so it is a little different. You know, I always loved, I would talk about how I loved being able to put my notebook in my back pocket, lean against a wall and blend it and just watch and see what happens. And you obviously can't do that when you got three camera people and a producer and you want to look out for them and you're checking, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta be paying attention in a way that's a little different. Do people react to you differently with a, a camera running than a, than a notebook out? I think so. I think sometimes, you know, look, again, people are people, right? Like protesters are not some special like breed of people. <laughs> they don't behave any differently. And so it's like, so like, it's like she asked that question in another context. So do people at brunch behave differently when someone pulls their phone out to take photos for Instagram of brunch? Well, yes, they do. They get closer together. They do some dramatic face with their, and they clink their, you didn't spend brunch clinking your glasses together, right? Right. (laughs) No one actually sits that close together and your food wasn't arranged that way. You did that explicitly because the camera was out there, right? Right. And people protest the exact same way. (laughs) Like people play to the camera and that's not to say that the things we see on camera would not be happening that's not just i'm not in any way questioning the genuineness of the anger what i mean to say though is i always know that introducing a camera into a scenario there's always the potential that the people who i'm theoretically just trying to objectively cover their behavior that i am now influencing their behavior and you just have to think about it and that's totally different when you when i am just like 29-year-old black guy who literally could just be another protester who's making small talk with you and then re- and then pulls a notebook out. Do you think you get a different reception as a 29-year-old um, black reporter than you would as a white reporter among the protesters? Protesters and the police, hmm. right? So among the protesters, they said you could literally be one of them. And so when you're walking up there, they might initially be thinking, I'm going to tell them where the signs are or where the march is going, or I'm going to ask them if they need some water, right? You have an in in a way that's different because you, you don't look and feel out of place, right? Right. And also, if I'm interviewing a, a group of three black protesters, we're standing off to the side, things get a little dicey, and a bunch of a phalanx of cops come charging at us. When they see me, are they immediately going to think that's the press guy? It's the guy from Quibi. exactly right like precisely (laughs) not gonna happen like i in that moment there's gonna be a real chance that they're gonna treat me the way they're treating the normal people which as we have watched on video not always that great wesley thank you so much for taking the time no of course and i look forward to uh reading what you write and uh potentially uh, grabbing a quibi account and uh checking out what you've been filming yes definitely uh do that and the other thing is, the other thing is, is the only person who's ever watched Squibby, um, the LeBron documentary is really good too. Shout out to LeBron. I hope we get to talk again soon sometime. Of course. I'll talk to you soon, man. Thank you for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to Wesley Lowry. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Marina Clementi, and you, the listener. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? 
Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.